The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give shalom. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, hello and welcome everybody. Um, if you're new here, my name's Joel. We're in the third of three messages on the Haggai story at the very closing part of the Old Testament. Just to give you the background one more time, this is a group of people who had come back into the land, the promised land. They'd been exiled from it, spending a long time in Babylonian captivity uh, as a act of discipline. God had dealt with them by sending them away and now they were coming back into the land, back into Jerusalem and constructing a, a remake of the former temple, the house of God. This had been Solomon's temple, the grand kind of cathedral-like um, structure. Uh, it was nothing like a cathedral in some ways, but it was big, it was imposing, and most importantly, it was the house of the Lord. It, that, that was, that's not a metaphor, it really was the dwelling place of God, the presence of God uh, dwelling on earth in a particular place. And uh, it was their business to reconstruct, to rebuild and to start again to see this city of Jerusalem established as kind of God's capital city on planet earth, the dwelling place of God. So what they're about is a project of, of cosmic importance, but they're just a crew of ordinary people uh, with real lives, real challenges, real difficulties, and, and a lot of reasons why they might quit and uh, give in to disappointment. And so Haggai is sent as a preacher to stir them up and to revive their, their, their sense of excitement and to stir them to a place of focus and determination. And that's what he's doing in this story. And we are, we're using this story as a church here at Emmanuel uh, these weeks to, to do the same because we're in a place of recovery, a place of 
starting again after COVID, after lockdown, after not even gathering on Sundays properly for a long, long time. And we're just beginning to now, beginning to go back to normal. And it's, it's, it's a time of rebuilding for us in a similar way. And so we've tried to draw out some of the principles, some of the, some of the messages, some of the lessons for our uh, existing situation. If you're new here, you might be thinking, well, this, this is all very well for you guys, but here I am um, new in church, new in Emmanuel. How does this relate to me? I hope it does. I think it will. I think it's a bit like if you kind of come in by accident, you take a wrong corridor in a, in a football stadium and end up at the changing room at half time. And you're just sort of listening in on the coach talking to the team. Um, you might think, well, I'm not in the team. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel that this is for me. Um, but you might actually, if you sit and listen or just stand back and hide and listen, nevertheless find there are things that relate directly to you, that are helpful, that are worth applying into your life. And so I hope that you'll find that everything that we have to say is somehow relevant to you, even though this message is more directed today at Emmanuelas. Okay? In the weeks to come, when we do the whole series called Your People, um, man, that is, that is going to be directly relevant to everyone in the city. Uh, I trust. But let's, let's look at this stuff together. We're looking at a group of people who, I suppose if you, if you think of the image like this, like a steam train, which I know you all came here on a steam train, I'm sure, because it's 1950. Um, if, you, uh, if you have seen one, though, in the movies, or, or maybe you've seen one on a, on a, on a you know, reconstruction or, or an old one, you see uh, wheels that take a long time to gain momentum. Uh, when when the, this, the engine is starting to go, uh, you get the sense of this enormous constructed engine. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating if you're into it and understand the technology, which I don't. But if you, if you uh, look at the wheels, it's like there's a huge amount of energy just to generate the tiniest bit of movement. And the momentum, there is no momentum. Momentum is, is not there. Momentum starts to build and gets to the point where it, it, it really, it's, it's harder to slow the engine down than to start it. <laughs> When a train is going at full speed, the momentum seems to be doing all the work. I guess it's a bit like if you're kind of rolling a boulder up a hill uh, and then you get to the hill and then it's a hard job to kind of stop it from going down the other side. Momentum uh, starts to do a lot of the work for you. This group of people have no momentum. Uh, they've, they've, uh, they've, they've perhaps known in their history, they, they've got the, the privilege of previous generations telling them about when there was momentum, when there was a, a great temple, when there was a, a great nation, when they were a multitude, when it, it, they were a strong people, perhaps going back many, many, many generations. But for these people, there's, there's, there's precious little momentum to be found. And, and so they can't just sit back and watch the thing get done. They can't, they can't enjoy <laughs> a kind of a leisurely a spectator seat while uh, the workmen get on with the job. They're all being recruited into it. They're all being expected to put their shoulder to the wheel. And, and actually, they're finding it a, a sweaty, difficult, challenging, dusty, painful job. And at times like that, like in fact this, we have the opportunity, in fact, to see things more accurately. Because what, what times like this, where there seems to be zero momentum around, what times like that do for us is 
helpfully, healthily humble us to a place of remembering our dependence, remembering our real need, having a, a more honest, sober assessment of ourselves, knowing how much we depend on God's activity, God's help, God's working, God's prior involvement, God's power, God's enabling. We cannot do the work without him. The work is too much. If we had some momentum, we might kid ourselves. We might imagine that, yeah, we, we can handle this. Look at how well we're doing. Look at the success we've had. This, this is looking good. I think we'll make it. But when the whole thing looks crazy, when it looks beyond us, I think it can re return us to a place of healthy dependence, to a place of prayerfulness, to a place of seeking where our true confidence lies, Rem remembering where we should place our feet, where we should find security, where we should place our hope. What, what, what is the real kind of orientation of the church? What is the real focus? It should be that we are constantly aware of our dependence on God and living that out in prayerful longing for his kingdom, his breakthrough, his power, his, his authority, his anointing, his, his help. I find myself these days crying out to God for his breakthrough, in, perhaps in a way that I haven't done for a few years because I'm more aware of how desperately dependent we are, more aware of how we need a fresh outpouring of his Holy Spirit, a fresh breakthrough of God. I find myself more on my knees, more yearning, more earnest, perhaps, perhaps than I was. And I hope that's true for many of us. I hope as well that in the midst of it all, we're able to hold our nerve because we shouldn't be freaked out. We should understand ultimately, friends, our hope was never in our momentum. <laughs> If we thought that we were going to succeed as a church or if you were going to succeed as a person because, well, you seem to be, you know, we've got some momentum now. We've got a bit of traction. We seem to be getting somewhere. It betrays a, a, a superficial grasp of reality because the, the days are much more evil than that. The world is in a much darker place. The need is so much greater. The multitudes without Christ who are going into eternity of, of vast and the need for us to, to weigh that properly in our hearts and, in our, and to, to sort of factor that in, to have a, an accurate assessment of the real situation so that we feel our dependence. We see, gosh, this, we, we are, we're in ourselves. We're not going to do this job well. <laughs> we need help. We need God. We need to, to seek him. But in the midst of that, not to panic, to call to mind his greatness, to call to mind his great works, to call to mind his great plans and his purposes. That's what Haggai does in the, this, this passage that we're looking at today. He reminds the people of their God, of his commitment to his church, his people, and his, his great promises, his great plans for the future of his people. And it's, it's a necessary thing for the Christian to stand firm holding their nerve 
at times of depletion, times when it's hard to know what to expect, times when there's no momentum. Holding our nerve, remembering Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, those who know the Lord shall stand strong and shall do exploits. Shall, shall stand strong and take action because they know the Lord. In the midst of all the challenges, they, they are, their roots go deep. They know the Lord. They know the Lord. And it's, it's relevant to what Haggai goes on to say. He, his first prediction, in fact, his first promise that God makes through him uh, to the people uh, there in verse 6, he says, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations. This is not apparently comforting, is it? <laughs> when you first read it, it's not the way that we expect to be tenderly uh, uh, encouraged at times when we feel a little traumatised. I can't imagine going to a doctor or a psychiatrist and uh, pouring out my heart and then him saying, well, look, here's, here's my first uh, therapeutic uh, act. Here's, here's the first bit of counsel or advice. In fact, let's, let's, let's put you in this barrel uh, in my office and I want to just roll it around while you're in. So you get really well shaken up. I just want to shake you. I think you need a good old shaking. I, I've not heard of that being a, a, you know, a school of thought, you know, a, a therapeutic method, but God seems to apply a, a, this kind of surprising response to their situation. I, I will shake all things, says the Lord. I, I'm going to shake everything. I'm going to shake everything. Why is he saying this? Surely, as much as anything else, he's saying it to give us perspective when the times come of shaking, which they do, so that we're well prepared, so that we of all people, those who know the Lord, came prepared for this. Those who know the Lord, they, they, they are primed. They're, they're well advised. They're prepared by God's promise, by God's, God's warning. I'm going to shake everything, says God. I will. I'll, I'll shake everything. And we see that. We see that obviously through circumstances of all kinds. Some of you are going through particular shakings that are affecting you in a unique way. You, your family, perhaps your, your, your business situation, your work. There can be shakings that are particularly uh, targeted at your life. There can be shakings that we are all feeling. The global geopolitical situation, the, the fears that always seem to rise up on, on that front, even environmental issues, COVID and all the, the, the continual seeming aftermath of, of, of what's taken place over the last couple of years. It's been a shaking. The impact on culture, various levels, the way in which strongly held ideologies are gaining a huge influence in our society in ways that for Christians especially, it can feel a bit unnerving. We feel shaken, perhaps. We feel like we're being even more marginalised. Where do we stand? How do we stand in our society? We feel shaken and we can start to allow the shaking, the violent shaking to get quite close to the core of us. We can feel all too shaken. When in fact, we of all people should not be surprised. I don't know if you, I want to urge you, friends, as those who belong to this God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, this one who 
this one who has promised, I am with you, declares the Lord. My spirit remains in your midst according to the covenant I made with you when I brought you up out of Egypt. Remember when we looked at that last week? This covenant-keeping God, those of us who know and belong to him, of all people should be able to stand firm and hold our nerve in the midst of shakings, which will continue to come. Help us, Lord, to, to call to mind the promises you make, to call to mind your character and to stand firm. Don't be shaken. You've no business being shaken if you belong to the living God. It's not where you stand. It's not, it doesn't characterise you. If you know him, you'll be able to withstand the shakings and hold on in hope and remain peaceful and, and know a genuine, a, a real genuine peace that comes from him. It doesn't come from something we, we pretend something we religiously try to sort of concoct and manufacture in our own kind of pseudo-spiritual false way. No, 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 no. There's no use for that. There's no point in that. The, the, nece the necessary thing is to call to mind the promises of God, the character of God, the plans of God, even the promises he has made to indeed shake all things. When shakings come, we should be saying, well, he said he would. He said he would. He said he would. So God help us to, to be prepared in our, in our very soul at those times and to understand the, the purpose of God in these things. Friends, we live in a world characterised more and more, it seems to me, by excessive commentary. You know, if, we, if, if certain generations have been the era of, of invention or the era of discovery, you know, back in the time of the Renaissance, the era of learning, the, you know, the era of explorers with Columbus and Raleigh and Magellan and the, the era of inventors with Edison and, and others, the, the, the eras of different kinds of personalities that shape culture. I, I, I wonder, I suggest that ours might be the era of the commentator the era of the, of the blogger, the era of the, the person with an opinion, the era of, of just the, the, the commentary, constant tweeting, constant uh, hot takes on every issue. And, and it's so easy, it's sucked into the sort of the maelstrom of opinion when our business as the people of God is to hold firm to God's take, God's clear witness through scripture as to what he has done, what he promised he would do and his plan through it all. See, world opinion will continue to make all kinds of predictions and they will continually be wrong because no one, whatever their statistical uh, uh, ability is, whatever their ability might be to analyse and judge data and, and plot statistics on a chart, you, anybody who sort of comes out trying to say, well, I predicted, it, there's always a tiny, slim minority who say, yeah, well, we knew that the, the crash was going to come in 2008 or the, we knew that COVID was coming. The vast majority of people are sailing into ignorance all the time with all of their charts and fact sheets. They simply don't know because it's not given to us to know. We don't, we don't know the detail in that way because the world doesn't work quite like that. It seems that we forget the, 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 the way the chaos theorists talk about, you know, a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil causes a, a hurricane in Texas. That, that, that's actually, that's, that's more like it. <laughs> the things that suddenly take off, the things that suddenly take root, the things that suddenly bring transformation, no one could have quite predicted, however clever they look afterwards when it's happened. 
So we need to surely be of all people, those who can humble ourselves, say, Lord, we trust you in the midst of all the shakings, all the tremors, all the things that take place. We know that you're working things out. And he is. He stands in authority over all of the shakings. Nothing shakes him. Nothing ever could. And it's even remarkable to me that the book of Haggai keeps referring to God in this title, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, that's a deliberate title. It means the Lord of heaven's armies. It's a kind of military title. It's saying God is sovereignly in control. He's in control of all the angelic armies. He is, he's the one who controls the whole war, as it were. He's sovereign. The Lord of hosts. It uses that title 14 times in the book, which twice times seven is perhaps a, 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 a significant number in Bible terms. It's, it, it, means, it means what it says. He is the Lord of heaven's armies. He's in control of the detail. He's in control of the whole process. He's, he's aware of it and he ordains it from top to bottom so we can rest secure. We can rest that he's working through it for his purpose. The way that we think history is being run by multinationals, by, by governments, by, by, by all kinds of interest groups and lobbyists and by those who, who seem to wield political power potently. I mean, they're, they're real things. These people are powerful, not despising or ignoring any of them ultimately, but they all really still hold their authority at best by borrowing it from him. It's, it's all of it, authority, that ultimately feeds back to him. He's in control of it. And so things like, you know, it's, it's almost comical in Scripture, the fact that when it says in the beginning of Luke's Gospel that the, 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 the emperor wanted everybody to have a census. Everybody has to go to their own place of birth to be registered. A census throughout the land. Now... He thought he was doing it to count out his empire. He thought he was doing it for his own reason. The reality is that God wanted to get Mary, Jesus' mother, to Bethlehem, her town of birth, in time to have a baby. Because the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem and she was in Nazareth up north. And so how is God going to get this peasant girl in the north down to the south in Bethlehem? How's he going to do it? He gets the emperor of the Roman, <laughs> of, the, of the known world to do a census which causes thousands and thousands and thousands of people to... He's doing all of this, all of this, this dust flies in the air as it were. All that's going on is so that God can get an unknown woman to an unknown place for a, an apparently unknown act that no one even cares or notices about except a few shepherds and some strange men from the east who come following a star. It's all in the backwaters, it's ignored. Most of the great things that God does in history, no one detects it in the opening stages. And so our, our tendency to read things by the present, think, oh, we feel marginalised, we feel on the edge, but where does the church fit? Does the church fit? Does the church have a future? We've got we to, in, in, instead, refresh ourselves, remind ourselves with the reality of God's sovereignty over all things to, to work through and in the marginal. The, the Romans put their... They're perfectly shaped stone roads all across their empire, putting roads down for their armies. They thought they were putting roads down for their armies. They were putting their roads down for the Apostle Paul to walk on to preach the gospel all over the Roman Empire. That's why they put the roads down. 
God works through all of the shakings, all of the, 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 the comings and goings of despots and rulers and leaders and tin pot dictators. He is sovereign in each one. And they can imagine that they're in control. But friends, what we have to believe, what I have to preach, what this word has to say, is that for the believer, we must, we must stand strong. We must hold our nerve in a place of confidence. God's in authority. He's in control. <laughs> And in the midst of shaking, which keeps coming, we stand fast, we hold our nerve, we say, Lord, we saw it coming because you told us. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe you about the future. And it's because he has such a plan for the church. As far as he's concerned, the church is the most important thing on planet Earth. When, when the arch persecutor, the, the most vicious, horrifying enemy of the church, was confronted by Jesus. The words that Jesus used when he spoke to him were, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you, why are you coming after me? And Saul may have thought, I, I didn't even know you were real. <laughs> who, who are you? Who are you? As he blindly scrabbled around. Because Jesus takes his church that personally, because the church belongs to him. He is the head, we are the body. He's joined to us. He's, he's watching over history to bring to maturity a glorious people. That's his business. That's his purpose and plan. He's doing it. So Haggai has this message to bring to us. I'll shake all things, he says. So in verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. That's it. That's what God's doing through everything that takes place on a global scale, on a national scale, even in our individual lives. The purposes of God through history remain that he will, he will glorify his church. He will beautify his church. He will bring in the nations. He wants to fulfill his promise. He made to, to Abraham, even as we looked at months ago in this church, Genesis chapter 12, through you, Abraham, all nations shall be blessed. Or even the, a better translation might be, through your seed, Abraham, all nations shall bless themselves. All nations, all peoples will bless themselves <laughs> as they come into contact with you and your seed. As people come to know Jesus, as peoples, groups, nations, ethnic groups come to know Jesus, they bless themselves. They're not squashed and squeezed and minimized. It, the Bible here speaks about glory, about, about wealth, the wealth, the treasures of nations shall come in. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. God doesn't want to squash cultures, doesn't want to squash creative expression. He wants to bless it. He wants to improve it by bringing it through the prism of Christ so that, so that it's kind of multicolored glory is shown and expressed more fully through exposure to Jesus so that cultures find life. You see, the temple that they were used to, these people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, a stone temple, a stone building in a particular place, ultimately was a limiting factor. If you wanted to get to know God, really, you had to literally go to that place. If you wanted to meet him, there was a place to go to on planet Earth, a location. There, was, there were rituals, there were systems, there was all the trappings and, 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 and styles even of it. There were the specific clothes and, and washings and all of the things, the trappings that, that frankly didn't travel very well. 
And it's, it's, it's one of the glorious features of, of the story this Bible tells, that God's plan ultimately was not to hold himself to one ethnic group, one nation only, but to be known by all nations, all nations to be blessed, all cultures, all languages, all tribes to come in and bring with them their particular unique colours, styles, languages, cultures, uh, different ethnic identities coming in and having expression, shared expression, equal expression at the table. So that the church becomes this fascinating multi-ethnic celebration of life from all nations. We're so used to discussing issues of race and racism in a context of, 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 of fear, exhaustion, weariness, pain, struggle, tough, difficult stories, trauma, violent history, repression, judgmentalism, bigotry of all kinds. When we look at the story the scripture tells, it tells a story of something hopeful. The church actually, rather than being a context for racism, being, a, being an agent for wonderful, beautiful diversity, creative diversity, God seeing that that is celebrated in his house. And this is exciting for us on mission. When we, we come into our city as the people of God, as we come into this post-COVID world to, to present Jesus, we can remain confident that the best version of Brighton and Hove and Shoreham is the Christian version. <laughs> for, for Brighton and Hove and Shoreham and beyond to bless themselves is for them to come to know Jesus. And it won't be a squashing of culture. It won't be a limiting of culture. It will be a celebration of culture and life. It's interesting to note that in Afghanistan, since the Taliban uh, retook power, music is gone again. Music disallowed. Music from, from all public spaces, all of it, it's just disallowed. Because what you have there is a, is a worldview, a religious system which doesn't celebrate culture in that kind of way. It can't because it takes the living God, it takes the God who is Father, Son and the Holy Spirit to, to, to say this is an aspect of my creative expression, it's a gift to you and it's through this gift that you can glorify me and you can be delighted, you can enjoy all these different features of creation that I've said are good. It's just one example of music. Think of the multiple ways in which we can see God's house filled with the wealth of nations, blessed as all kinds of things come into the church. But let me just make one last point that it's, it's, it's bursting out really of this, 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 this chunk of scripture at us. It's, it's the way God doesn't just speak of the wealth of nations, but speaks of glory. He says, I will fill my house with glory. And friends, in the midst of the, the stuff about shaking, we need to understand that the, the, the filling of the house with glory, it's at least got a side to it that will make us rightly step back and tremble. In the Bible, the theme of glory is, is one that should at least make us pause. Because the presence of God, the presence of the real God of the Bible is no trivial matter. The presence of the real God, the, the holy, holy, holy God of the Bible. Whenever people really come into contact with, with this God in this book, what we're aware of overwhelmingly is the, the, the trembling, the, the, the discomfort, at least initially, that, that can come upon a person, the sense of closeness to something totally beyond them, totally other. And, and 
extreme in perfection, in holy perfection, to the point where they also become horribly aware of their shortcomings. People who meet God in this book will tremble. People who meet God in this book will fall on their faces. People who meet God in this book will not know what to say. They meet with the Holy One. And this isn't a, a, a superficially happy matter. It's not for the, sh the, the, the shallow kind of religion that can, that can kind of be expressed by those who don't really consider fairly the substantial reality of the living God. And, and so when it speaks of the, the, the house being filled with glory, in some respects, this might cause us to think, well, how? How, can, how is this a good thing? When, when Solomon's temple was filled with glory, the, it says the priests were overwhelmed. They, they lay upon the ground. They couldn't minister. When the tabernacle at Moses at the end of Exodus was filled with glory, the same thing, it was overwhelming. It was fire and cloud and smoke and it was devastating. It was magnificent, but, but uh, it caused men and women to tremble. Woe is me, says Isaiah, when he meets with the glory of the Lord in the temple. When, when Haggai promises a day coming when the Lord will fill his house, it ought to cause us to be puzzled to think, how is that an attractive thing to ordinary, common, sinful people? How is that an appealing thing? And yet it is. He, he makes it appealing. He gives it to them as a promise for their comfort that the Lord will fill his house with glory. How can this be? You know, it reminds me of, of it specifically says actually in the early church, in, in the book of Acts, it describes it in this way. In one place, in Acts chapter 5, it says in Acts chapter 2 that the, the, the church was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with a sense of awe, a sense of fear. Everybody was. And then you get uh, chapter 5 where Luke describes it. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. This really strange statement he makes where it says no one dared to join them because they held them in such esteem. And yet they kept growing as more people did join them. How, how can Luke say both things at once? No one dared to join them, but so many people joined them. Because the, 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 the sense of awe, the sense of fear, as the glory of the Lord was being present amongst an ordinary group of people, these people, the church, they are so filled with something real, something glorious, that I, at the same time, tremble and at the same time I can't help but come close I want I want this and friends this is true for all of us we were born made created to know the glory of God made for glory but it's a glory that we have fallen short of it's a glory that we have turned away from it's a glory that we have replaced with false glories and that's added to our sense of guilt, shame, dirtiness, we are aware that we come into his presence as aliens and strangers. And yet Haggai says, in this place I will give peace. Glory and peace? How can it be peaceful to be in the glory of God? There's only, only one way the Bible gives us and it's the way. And it's the great claim of the church. It's what Paul gets excited about in his letters to the Romans. We have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is what God offers. Friends, you need peace. We all feel the need for peace, right? We need peace. Just give me some peace. Give me a bit of peace. Give me half an hour of peace. I, need, I, need, I just need a peace in my, in my mind, peace in my heart, peace about the future. We all have certain desires for peace. We have a version of this in our own minds. But friends, your real need for peace is something you may not even be in touch with because you were born into a condition of conflict with God, enmity with God, being not at home with God. God, not at home, not welcome in his house. And yet he does welcome you. He draws you. He says, I want the nations to come in. How can this be so? Because God himself has made peace with us. God himself has offered himself by offering his son on the cross. Jesus, who bled and died, was crucified, buried. He dealt with the conflict, the enmity as the Bible calls it, between you and God. He dealt with it. He dealt with it so that when he came back to his disciples in John chapter 20, after the cross and the resurrection, it says he showed them his hands and he showed them his side, the wound where the spear had gone in. And he said to them, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Do you need peace? <laughs> we all need peace. We all are aware often of our need. Friends, you need peace like you don't realise. You need such peace and it can only be found in the wounds of Jesus Christ who dealt with our shame, our sin, all that would disqualify us, he dealt with it so that we could have peace. And if you become a Christian, you can enjoy and know peace as a gift from God. All of us can and be renewed in it and enjoy the peace that comes from forgiveness of sins, cleansing of conscience, and future hope with a God who says, whatever shakes, whatever changes, whatever challenges come to the world, whatever I do to bring about transformation in this world, I'm with you. I'm holding on to you. I love you. I've got plans for you. Father, we thank you for the peace that you offer. We pray that this house would be filled with glory. We pray that this, this church even would be filled with your presence. In some respects, that's a dangerous prayer to make. And yet we say, ultimately, we'd rather, we'd rather have your glory than miss the point of our lives. So come and visit us as a church in 2021. Do greater and more powerful things still. And help us to know your great peace through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Speak to you soon.